This morning we'll be looking in Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 27. Over the next four weeks, I will uh, bring four messages on the topic of serving Jesus Christ as Lord. This morning we'll look at the beginning of this center part of Philippians and talk about what it means, what it looks like to serve Jesus Christ as Lord. If you will become like Christ, which is God's goal for your life, then that means you will, be, you will become a servant of God, you will become a servant of the church, and you will become a servant to a lost and dying world. You will serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, he set the example when he said that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we will look at Philippians 1:27 through 30 this morning, and then over the next three weeks we will look at chapter 2. And I'm going to talk about the servant's cause. What is it that we give our lives to? That's the message this morning. Next week I will talk about the servant's character. Who do we need to look like? What do we need to look like to be servants of Jesus Christ? The third week I'll talk about the servant's conduct, our obedience in serving Jesus Christ. And then the fourth week I will talk about the servant's commitment, a commitment to a life or death ministry. But this morning, I want us to think about the question, what will I serve? What will I give my life to? Or better yet, who will I give my life to? You know, there are people who give their lives to patriotism. I consider myself a patriot. I love our country. I don't love much about it, but I'm glad that I was born in the U.S. of A. And I imagine if you were born somewhere else, you were glad that you were born there. I am a patriot, and I do pray for and, and desire the health of America, but I have no hope in that. My hope is in the gospel. So I don't give myself to patriotism, though I'm interested in it. Some give themselves to the cause of justice. And I believe in justice for all people, though I ultimately understand that there is no real justice apart from the gospel, apart from knowing the God of justice. It is difficult for sinful men like you and me to bring about a, a nation of justice. Others just give themselves to success to becoming the best they can at whatever they do and that's a noble cause I think if you are a believer that you should be the best that you can be in anything that you do but it should not be the major cause of your life you should be driven by something greater greater than success greater than money I like the way John Piper put it he said, God created me and you to live with a single, all-embracing, all-transforming passion, namely, 
a passion to glorify God by enjoying, enjoying and displaying the supreme excellence of God in all of the spheres of life. He goes on to say, whatever you do, find the God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated passion of your life and find your way to say it and to live for it and to die for it. And you will make a difference that lasts. You will not waste your life. And by the way, I would like every household here, I would like every Christian in the world to read the book that John Piper wrote called Don't Waste Your Life. And I'm going to make it easy for you to do that. I have a number of English copies of that sitting on the front seats up here. One per household. Take it and read it. I dare you to. I have a number of Spanish copies. Please take one per household and read it. I would love to say I have French copies, but it's not in French. So if you speak French, you'll have to take a, an English copy or maybe even a Spanish one, which may be closer to French than uh, English is. But every household should have that book and read it. He goes on to say, life is wasted if we do not grasp the glory of the cross, cherish it for the treasure that it is, and cleave to it as the highest prize of every pleasure and the deepest comfort in every pain. What was once foolishness to us, a crucified God, must become our wisdom and our power and our only boast in the world. In chapter 1, verses 12 through 26, the Apostle Paul showed in his own life how the cause of the gospel is what consumed him. Here he sits in a Philippian prison. prison. He is in jail for the gospel. And he writes to the Philippians and he says, I want you to know that the things that have happened to me, my being in prison, have turned out rather for the advancement of the gospel. He says, as a result of my being here in prison, the entire Roman guard that is taking care of me, up to 10,000 men, have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. What would it be like to be the guard that was chained to the Apostle Paul? Eight hours a day chained to the Apostle Paul. What would it be like? What would Paul's conversation be? If you're sitting in a car with someone for hours, or you're sitting in a plane by someone for hours, Ultimately, as a believer, where do you want your conversation to go? Paul said as a result of the change of guard that takes place three times a day, that the gospel has gone through 10,000 guards in this area. 
He says, I want you to know that even though I am in prison, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing will I be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it's by life or by death. Paul gave himself to the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to our text this morning. Philippians 1, 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. With one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul has one exhortation, one appeal in these verses. If you were to read it in Greek, you would find that this is one long, complex sentence. There's no period. It starts with verse 27, grows, goes straight to 30. It's a complex sentence, but it's all gathered around one main thought. Only live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And everything else he says is rooted in that, is, is related to that. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning I want to walk through this text and have us think about the cause that we have, the great opportunity that we have to give ourselves to something that is not only wonderful, but it's eternal and it is satisfying. Paul wants us to know in this text that it is possible to conduct yourself in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of course, it's possible also then to conduct yourself in a manner that is unworthy of the gospel. The language is forceful. At the very head of the sentence, he puts the word only this one thing. Think about this singularly. Let this thought capture your mind. It's like he says in 1 Corinthians 15, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is of first importance. Or as Jesus said, seek 
first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything you need will be added to you. Paul says only put everything else out of your mind and let this thought consume you and govern everything else you do. Live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he brings to the very front of the sentence that word worthily. He wants you to think about that. Don't just live as a Christian. Live worthily of the gospel. Let, let the gospel of Christ be the measure of how you will live your life every day. This is a command. It can be obeyed. Or can be disobeyed. It's a command that indicates an ongoing responsibility. Literally, keep living in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's a command, it means that it's not something that takes place automatically. Just because you became a Christian does not guarantee that you will live a life worthy of the gospel unless you choose to do so, unless you choose to obey and to pursue this. Live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You will not live this out unless you are responding to the ongoing progressive work of the Spirit of God in your life that will continually point you to the sufficiency and the glory of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. I think we all should ask ourselves some questions, probing, perhaps convicting questions. Does my life matter for the kingdom of God. As Piper asked, don't waste your life. Am I wasting my life? Does my life really matter? Is there anything about the kingdom of God that is advanced and enhanced and expanded by my life? Is the kingdom of God more attractive to others because of the way that I'm living my life daily. Does my life matter to the kingdom? If I were to die today or to depart today from, from my identity as a Christian, would it be a loss to the kingdom of God? Jesus told us that the that the kingdom of God is so important, that following him is so important, that once we have put our hand to the plow and we have started to pursue him, if we turn back, he says, we're not fit. It's the same word. We're not worthy. We don't measure up to our claim to be people of the kingdom if we're not pursuing the kingdom and plowing a straight line, moving forward in our life. Jesus said salt is good, but if salt lost its taste, you might as well throw it, he says, in a pile of manure. 
or throw it in the trash. It's worthless unless it has powerful influence. Yes, we have a choice. We can live worthy of the kingdom of God. It is possible by the grace of God and the help of the Spirit to live a life that is worthy of God. It's important to note in our text that the word he chooses that's translated as live your manner of life refers to the entire scope of someone's life. It's, it's a, the life that makes a difference for the gospel is a life that lives worthy of the gospel, not just in church, but also in the traffic jam. It's a life that lives worthy of the gospel, not just in prayer meeting, but at the grocery store. It's a life that lives worthy of the gospel, not just fellowshipping at a church dinner or in the church foyer, but as well as you're sitting in front of the TV or going to work every day. Live worthy of the gospel in all your manner of life. The entire scope of life. There is no item of life. There is no time of life, whether it's on the college campus or the doctor's office or the emergency room or the labor in the factory or the home or the theater or the bowling alley. Live worthy of the gospel, he says, in all of your life. As a college student, let all of your life on campus as well, in, as, well as church to be worthy of the gospel of Christ. As a businesswoman or a businessman, in all of your business dealings, live worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The standard of measurement he makes clear is nothing less than the pure, glorious, wonderful, eternal gospel of Jesus Christ. This is our measure, the gospel, the good news about this person, Jesus, the one who died for your sin, the one who rose again, the one who gave you the life that you don't deserve. Obviously, Paul was captured by this Jesus, as he told us not only in chapter 1, but he will tell us again in chapter 3 of Ephesians. He says, but whatever was to my profit, whatever to, to what was to my gain, I now consider loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. I consider everything as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for for whose sake I've lost all things, but I consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in him. I wonder if that sounds strange to you. To be caught up with and consumed with and in love with and dedicated with and controlled by and thinking about 
and telling others about this person, Jesus Christ, and thinking about your life in such a way that you're thinking, is what I'm saying worthy of the gospel? Is how I'm acting worthy of the gospel? Is the way I'm treating my wife worthy of the gospel? Is the way I'm responding to my husband worthy of the gospel? Am I living a life that measures up to the claim that I have been bought and purchased and redeemed and loved and captured by Jesus Christ? He says the result of carrying out this commitment is that you will stand firm in one spirit. That if a church really grasps this, if they really get it, that Christ is all, and we will give ourselves to follow Christ in all things, then the consequence of that is they stand firm in one spirit. Christian unity is a simple consequence of keeping the gospel of Christ and the person of Christ at the center of everything. And he says, I want you to have this. I want you to know this. Whether I'm with you, he says, or whether I'm not with you. It's not the external pressure of the apostle that should cause you to live in a, in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. It should be the internal joy of the gospel, that love for Christ that comes from within so that whether I'm with you or not, you are standing in unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when a church is standing in unity, when they are caught up with who Jesus Christ is, the evidence of that will be that they will engage fearlessly in the advance of the gospel. I love the way he describes it. Contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Or standing side by side. It's an interesting Greek word. Actually a combination of two words. We get our word athlete from this word contending. It's sometimes even used of a gladiator. You know, I think one of the great films of all time is the film Gladiator, where you see somebody giving his life for the cause of freedom. And even in his dying breath, as he's about to leave this world with the little strength that he has, he can muster up enough strength to cry out, Freedom! Freedom! Contending as one man with others engaging in this contest, this, this gladiator battle, contending as one man because you're all committed to Christ. 
You're all consumed with Christ. You're all in love with Christ, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. The faith which is both produced by the gospel, because as we'll see, that is a gift of God in verse 29. But it's the faith which also has for its object the gospel. This is what we believe. This is what we stake our hope on and stake our lives on. Fighting side by side. I have to ask myself, does this really describe Grace Church? Are we like one man with the same mind, the same spirit driving us, the same cause, the gospel of Christ, to live worthy of it, to engage the world we're living in with the truth of it, and doing that fearlessly. Thankfully, I can't say that what was happening in the Philippian church is happening in Grace Church, though I've been in churches where they were marked by division, mostly over pettiness. You know, most of the problems I've seen with Christians fighting each other has nothing to do with doctrine or even morality. It's just stupidity. Just pig-headedness. Just opinions. Even in this church, you know, Paul's talking about this because he's aware that there is a problem in Philippi of disunity. He'll tell us later in chapter 4 that there's a couple of women that, that uh, you know, are fighting over what we don't know. You odious and Sintiki, though others have renamed them as odious and soon touchy, which I think is a good description of people who have a difficult time getting along. You know, they're soon touchy. They're, you know, anything just moves them the wrong way because they think too much of themselves. Paul says, I want, I want you to be so centered on the cause of the gospel. I want you to be so caught up with what God has done for you in Christ that you will give yourself to live in a way that's worthy of the gospel and that you will all do it so that it will bring, to you, bring you together in such a unity that when you're engaging the enemy in the world, you are doing it as one man fighting side by side. What a beautiful picture of the church living and being what it ought to be. It's as Susan read this morning, other words that express how Paul was captured and consumed with Jesus Christ. Susan read that Paul said for for the love of Christ constrains me. It just 
wraps its arms around me. It grabs me. It holds me in. It captures me. I cannot get away from the love of Christ. And he said, the reason that is because I have determined that if Jesus died for all, he died for me. And he died for me so that I would no longer live for myself, but for the one who died for me and rose again. It's so simple. Why should I live for Jesus Christ? Paul says it's simple. He died for you and rose again and gave you a new life. And he gave that to you so that you could no longer live for yourself, but for the one who died for you and rose again. He makes it clear that the gospel has enemies, that the gospel will engender opposition. I had a friend of mine write me the other day and he was a little distraught. And he was saying, John, can you answer this for me? He says, I, I've been a Christian for many years. He's actually a, 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 a Jewish believer. And uh, he says, I've, ha I've had such difficulty making male friends among God's people. But he says, when I'm with my Jewish friends, you know, we can talk about Israel and talk about Judaism and talk about life. And he says, I have no problem getting along with my Jewish friends. And my response to that is, one, God's people can be difficult at times. But if you will have friends, show yourself friendly. I will never blame someone else for the lack of friendship in my own life. I will work hard to make even my enemy my friend by the grace of God. But secondly, maybe you get along so well with your Jewish friends because you talk about a lot of things. But not the gospel. Because the gospel is a stumbling block. It is an offense. And you start telling your Jewish friends that without Jesus, the Messiah, they're lost. That they have no special favor with God because of their ethnicity. But if they want to belong to the true God, they can only do that through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. If you're really engaging your friends with the gospel, I doubt that you're going to find them real friendly in the long term. The gospel has enemies. The gospel always engenders opposition. That is why we 
need each other. That is why we stand together in the faith of the gospel and for the faith of the gospel. This is what mission is all about. And he goes on to say that the very way we do that is itself a witness. The way you choose to engage in the battle for the gospel indicates something about you and provides a witness to the lost. He says, this is a sign to them. When you as a church, when you as a believer are so caught up with Christ, living in unity with other believers, engaged in the battle for the gospel of Christ, when you're doing this, he says, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed. But to you, that you will be saved. And that by God. That there's some kind of affirmation that takes place in my life, and my spirit, by the Spirit of God, when I am faithful to Christ. There's something within me that says, yeah, it's real. But if you're living denying Christ... You're not living a life that's worthy of the gospel. You're living for yourself. You're living like everybody else. You are, as uh, many Christian authors would say today, you're part of the Christian world that is amusing itself to death. Where even worship has become amusement. Well, you sit back and watch others perform instead of engaging in the joy of, of lifting up the name of Jesus yourself. This is a sign to them that, you, that they will be destroyed. There is something convicting in the life of an unbeliever to see somebody who faithfully lives for and loves Jesus Christ. I know when I was growing up as a rebellious kid in a Christian home, going to church, there were certain kids my own age that I hated. And the reason I hated them was because they made me feel so convicted and guilty because they loved Jesus and they lived for Jesus and they were faithful to Jesus. And I would criticize them. You know, I would say they weren't real men. But when I got saved... They became my best friends. Their godliness and commitment to Christ was a sign to me that I was on my way to destruction. Because that's what the gospel is. 
The gospel brings us to Jesus Christ, who is either the rock that we stand on and build on and are secure on, or the gospel is the rock that crushes us. Every believer needs to live with the joy of experiencing this confirmation of God's grace in their own soul, in their own life, as they live faithfully for Him and experience more of Him, as they stand for Him in the face of opposition and find that the Spirit of God is always true when Jesus said, don't be afraid. Don't even think about what you're going to say. Just be faithful. I'll fill your mouth. And to find that God does that when you refuse to deny Jesus Christ like Peter did. When you and I fail to engage with the church in the gospel of Christ, when we fail to stand firm in the gospel in our own daily lives, we rob ourselves of the joy as Daniel Fuller in his great uh, biblical theology understanding the Bible said. He said, as a, as a believer, you can double your joy. He says, in the gospel, if you're a believer, you have joy in Christ. You have joy that you're a child of God, joy that you're forgiven, joy that you're saved, joy that you're, you've escaped hell. You have joy. But he says you double your joy when you talk to someone else about the joy that you have in Christ. And this rush of fresh joy, this double joy comes into your life. Why live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel? Verse 29 answers that. It begins with the word because. This is why you should do this. Because it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. And as you've heard before and probably need to be reminded of again, when Paul says God has given you this, he has granted you this, it's the Greek word that the parallel is used in Romans chapter 6 verse 23 the gift of God is eternal life the word gift there is the word for grace gift it's a gift that is because of grace and the same word is used here it's not just a gift it's a gift that is rooted in grace that because of God's grace because of his goodness because of his sovereign love he gives you two things, Paul says. 
He gives you, number one, the ability to believe on him. First, by grace that you're saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Why did I believe? Because God gave me the gift of faith to believe. I cannot take any credit for my becoming a Christian. God opened my eyes and opened my heart and by the work of His Spirit brought me to put my faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord. Paul says God has given you this gracious gift to believe. And we all should say, Hallelujah! But it doesn't stop there. There's another gracious gift he gave you. And that is to suffer for him. And to that, we don't get many hallelujahs. But Paul says this is a gift of God's grace. That you have the privilege of identifying with Jesus Christ. The creator, redeemer God. Who became man to live the life that you could never live. And die the death that you deserve to die. To rise again to give you a life that you don't deserve. And to invite you to become part of his eternal family. You have this great privilege to identify with Jesus Christ. And to bear the dislike and the hatred and the vitriol and the bitterness that he himself faced in this world to the point where maybe you would say with the apostles as they suffered and were persecuted, they went back and they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus Christ. Jesus said, blessed are you. When men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you for my sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven and so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. Notice the progression of our text. Walk worthy, church unity, engagement in the gospel, and suffering. This is the pattern of living for Jesus Christ. It's a glorious pattern. Paul ends in verse 30 by saying that this suffering is the common experience of faithful believers in Jesus Christ. He says, you're going through the same struggle you saw I had. And the word struggle there, we get our word uh, agony from it. You saw the, the great difficulty, this agonizing suffering that I had for the gospel. And now you hear that I still have. But now you're going through it. But this is God's gracious gift to you as a believer. 
So I ask, who are you living for today? Does the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ capture your heart in such a way that it gives you energy and direction to live all of your life for his glory? For me, it happened this way on September 10th, 1970. I've repented of my sin and trusted Jesus Christ as my Lord. And I think from that day on, to the best of my understanding, I wanted to live for him. But on November, in November of 1970, as I sat in church and listened to an evangelist who was preaching about dedicating all of your life to Christ and living your life to Christ. And here I was, a street kid, a high school dropout, you know, not, but I'm saved, I'm forgiven of all that filth that was in my life, but not having any idea of what I'm going to do with my life. And that night I walked the aisle as he gave an invitation. I went forward, I declared publicly that I wanted to follow Jesus Christ fully. I wanted to be involved in the work of getting the gospel to a lost and dying world. This is what I want to give my life to. And I can say 50 years later, I still choose to follow Jesus Christ. I love John Oxenham's little poem. To every man there opens a way and ways and a way. And some men climb the highway and some men grope below. And in between on the misty flats the rest drift to and fro. And to every man there appears a highway and a law. And every man decides which way his soul will go. What will you decide? On January 6th, 1850, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon was converted. And on February 1st of that year, he wrote this prayer. And I close with this. May it be your prayer. Oh, great and unsearchable God who knows my heart and tries all my ways, with a humble dependence upon the support of your Holy Spirit, I yield myself to you as your own reasonable sacrifice. I return to you, your own. I would be forever, unreservedly, perpetually yours while I am on earth. I would serve you and may I enjoy you and praise you forever. Would you bow your head with me for a moment?
right where you sit today. You're a Christian. You've tasted the grace of God. This one who loved you enough to give his life for you. But will you say, I will live unreservedly for Jesus Christ. This will be my choice. I will live for Christ by his grace. If you can say that honestly, just raise your hand and say, yes, this is the cry of my heart. I will live for Jesus Christ. Amen. For you are worthy, Lord. You're worthy to receive power and glory and riches and honor. You're worthy of our denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following you. You are worthy for us to no longer live for ourselves, but to live for you who died for us and rose again. You are worthy. And Father, I pray if there is one person here this morning that does not know you, does not know your grace and your kindness and your goodness and your forgiveness, may they come to repentance right now and believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved in this very moment. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.